And finally for the program, let's talk some unusual quirky stories about motoring and transport. On the line, I have Errol Smith and Brian Smith. Gentlemen, good day. G'day, David. G'day, David. Now, let me start with saying that Nissan is going to and is employing an anthropologist to influence their autonomous vehicle design. They have a a lady there who I believe, uh, Melissa Sefkin, who is in the Nissan Research Centre in Silicon Valley. Now, we know anthropology is to do the study of humanity. Is a gentleman a good idea? Is this a trend in the motor industry you would see happening and indeed encourage? Well, David, it's quite an interesting idea that, um, you know, you, you need to understand how vehicles are used by humans in order to make sure that as autonomous vehicles that they will they, they will behave in a way that we're expecting them to behave. So, so Sefkin talks about um, taking a fresh look at how humans interact with a deeply and profoundly cultural object, the automobile. And so one of the challenges, for example, is in America they have four-way stop signs. So the idea is they need to be able to understand how humans judge giveaways and and the question of who goes first. However, I've got to say, I think um, if Nissan's using an anthropologist and I was their competitor, I'd immediately get uh, Sir David Attenborough to assist me with how animals behave. And so then I'd be able to market my autonomous vehicle as, you know, this is programmed like a cheetah or a lion or a tiger, dangerous, unpredictable. The great maybe, white shark version, you know. So maybe, well, we, the, maybe we could have uh, different driving modes and yes. you can select if you want. You ah, know. yes. Predator or prey. Yeah. <laughs> Bird animal. Dangerous loner. I'd love this sort of programming. So the idea is that, you know, you could, you might be driving your sort of human style vehicle and, you know, through comes a great white shark style vehicle and you're just getting out of the way. The thing is that they also talk about anthropology and ethnography which is really the understanding of cultures and i'm not judging cultures as good or as bad i'm just saying they're different might we need to be developing cars now away from global markets and with autonomy building them towards the more cultural differences Mm. within Mm-hmm. particular countries. The level of aggressiveness could be determined by the culture in which it's the car is driving. Oh, yeah, yeah. It might depend on who wins the American election. Oh, look, yeah, exactly, David. And, and we've talked before about how autonomous vehicles would need to accommodate different road rules, even within jurisdictions in Australia. But I can imagine, you know, you would want your autonomous vehicle to behave differently as you approached Mount Panorama in Bathurst. <laughs> based on the human condition up there, compared with, say, Potts Point or something like that. The other thing is, of course, that we're now involving other modes of transport much more. I was talking to an engineer the other day who said that engineers in the past, in certain government organisations, were indifferent to pedestrians. In fact, one engineer many years ago defined a pedestrian as a driver looking for their car. And when they came and put four pedestrian crossings at an intersection, someone said, why four? And he said, one for each pedestrian. (laughs) (laughs) But that interaction with pedestrians, of course, becomes, and bike riders and things, becomes much more both cultural as well as practical. You do want a, a practical interaction with the pedestrians and bike riders. 
because you don't want to hit them. Yes. And preferably yes, you don't want them hitting you. I'd like to see uh, the rules in, in interaction between uh, transit, say buses, and uh, autonomous vehicles. So, you know, if, if you ever go sailing or travelling on the water, there are uh, rules of the ocean that, that say that a vessel under sail, you know, must be given way to by a vessel under power and that ferries, for example, have right of way over many other vessels. And I think I'd like to say, see the same sort of rules where the system itself means that buses are given priority or taxis or even vehicles laden with more people. So you have a single lane of traffic, but a bit of parking space on the side, a breakdown lane. If a bus comes at the end of the queue, the automatic system could sort of gradually, wave-like, move cars out of the way to the left to let the bus take priority. So it doesn't need its own lane, but it might get priority anyway. This could be in conflict with the idea of an anthropologically programmed vehicle, though, I suppose, because different levels of aggression and uh, rule tolerance and things like that would need to be programmed in. Oh, okay. Well, you might pull over, but you can beat the horn and show the Mm. finger. Scofflaw sort of setting. Mm. What I'd like to know is, uh, would would a, um, say, a large seven-seater, four-wheel drive, a lot of ground clearance and lots of headlights and spotlights all over it. Would the autonomous version of one of those behave differently to the autonomous version of a a little, you know, two-seater city car? Oh, so you mean they might have the character of of the previous driver? You'd need to have a rural button in the car. Right, that you select rural with a an extra one that it's a Ute muster. <laughs> so you're immediately burning up. Yeah, well, summer nats. Summer nats mode. Summer nats mode. Yeah. Mm. Mm. And will the autonomous version of a, of a luxury European car fail to indicate like its owner would? <laughs> well, do you need indicators on autonomous vehicles? You probably don't. Now, instead of a blinker, it'd have a hand come out the side and wave the other car away <laughs> <laughs> with a glove on it car manufacturers have not necessarily been good at identifying what the customer really wants. They misjudged the SUV market, for example. It boomed much better. They built a Morris Marina. Clearly, they don't understand what people want. <laughs> this is human flaw, isn't it? The, the you know, flawed humanity kind of model. Well, it's the same with mobile phones, or any phones, in fact. I think, who was it that very early development of them said, I can envisage where every uh, town in America will have a phone. Mm. <laughs> you know, we will have 10, you know, the world needs 10 computers or something. We've just been appallingly bad at understanding how people will adapt it. I think this is important because a lot of transport planners believe in this ideal world of control and planning and mm. where rules and everything set up and and it will work as they want them to work as intended yeah yeah whereas other things will come evolve for example how will the insurance industry adapt to these things indeed it's it's um obviously the the crash rate goes down and hopefully uh, then the cost of crashes reduces and therefore risk goes down for insurance companies but there are some mm. complicated issues around what an autonomous vehicle should do in certain circumstances where there might have to be a crash. What they're doing with insurance, so we're looking at is the possibility is if I get a very bad disease, with a terminal disease, where I would spend six months to live and four months of those would be in an expensive hospital with tubes all over me, would I prefer to say, look, I'll live for two months without medication and give me a $10,000 bonus? I'll go and travel spend the world. 
uh, go and spend it, and give it to the kids, or have a big party, or whatever, and not spend four my last four months of my life in agony. So, what's the automotive equivalent, David? There is an issue. A cheaper rate might uh, give you lower lower survivability. You mean higher risk? Mm. When you get into a car, and it'll be a, perhaps a rental car more than necessarily a car you own, will you tick high coverage, low coverage? Mm. Mm. It may determine how the car behaves in a in an incident, I suppose. That, you know, if, if uh, there's going to be a crash, maybe your insurance level is the used by the car to determine whether you survive or not. This is a very big issue in terms of if my car could go headfirst to another car and likely kill me or my passenger, but I could head off to the side of the road, but there are pedestrians there, what should the car do? It has been taken further to say what happens if I, there was one pedestrian there and he had been in jail, he or she had been in jail. Ah, making some, mm. some very godlike judgments here. Yes, the, mor- the moral imperative. I'm not for the moment suggesting that we should, but we might. <sighs> Uplifting stuff, David. <laughs> well, the interesting thing now is if, that really understanding anthropology is going to be very important. You take someone like George Lucas. He said before he was a film major, he was heavily into social science. He'd done a lot of sociology, anthropology. He was playing what he called social psychology and looking at culture as a living organism what it, and what it does for us. So he then went into movies, which makes me suggest maybe we ought to study movies more as well. But there's a whole thing. There was someone who used to recruit, and it didn't matter what job they were recruiting for, whether it be an accountant, engineer and numbers, or whether it be something that might be more on the English literature side, they still looked, in both cases, in all cases, how well the person did in English and history. Now we might have to add in anthropology. If you want to be a mechanical engineer, perhaps you have to read Margaret Mead. Look, I think there's a, a huge industry to emerge in programming autonomous vehicles and programming advantage. Um, so the idea mm. that you may pay extra in order to have a more aggressive you know, vehicle uh, or perhaps even... Um, be able to pay for higher priority over other vehicles. So it may end up being you may be bidding continually on your place in the traffic stream. I think that's absolutely right. If you were running, if you were transurban running a toll road and someone said, I'll pay three times the amount of the toll to get to the head of the queue. They're at the head mm. of the queue. Yep. Yeah, and the, the, the other cars will get out of the way for you. Yes. Well, they'll direct them to. And, of course, if you join their road, perhaps you have to comply with their overarching rules. Okay. Mm. So they may then say, by entering our road, your autonomous vehicle will obey our rules around headway or priority, or they may even determine your speed or or which uh, exits you can use. You could buy more speed, so to speak. Well, they may manage it in order to maintain capacity in certain links. The other thing is they call those in America Lexus lanes. Lexus lanes. <laughs> and that's it. The people who can afford it will be advantaged as always. Yes. Well, that's, that happens when you have um, minor penalties for using bus lanes and things, doesn't it? Mm. People just pay the fine and keep doing it. You mentioned taxis. Yeah. I still think of taxis as private transport. I know they're called public transport, but they're one person in a car. I don't really think that that's a desirable uh, thing that we wish to encourage from a capacity point of view. But uh, that's just my opinion. Mm. Brian, you have a story for us. 
David, this is a wonderful story about that upholstery that you see on bus and train seats. Uh, a, uh, an artist and um, designer called Menja Stevenson, uh, in 2008, she undertook a thing called her Transit Couture project where she actually created clothing out of the fabrics and patterns used on um, trains and uh, light rail and buses. And then she would actually wear those designs on the same vehicles that had that upholstery on them. And it was a way to sort of get people to think about not just the upholstery that they see, but also that idea of, of people being visible or invisible on transit. And this brings us to the question of um, why is most train and bus seat fabric so ugly? Apparently there's a series of reasons here. People have actually studied it. So um, the first, of course, is... Uh, the fact that the design actually has to be durable and cleanable and has to sort of uh, hide stains. And so, um, you know, there's a particular fabric called Moquette, which Transport for London uses, and it's a, it's a pile fabric like carpet. And it's so made from wool, it's flame retardant, and it's durable. And so you end up with these very stiff sort of uh, piled fabrics then you have the design process where often you know, a committee is designing something or, or companies that have taken over a, a bus or train business may wish a, a very bright livery on their uh, seating or they might want to incorporate their logos. So you end up with kind of hideous design results there. And the fact that many of these fashion, these designs were sort of 80s and 90s designs. And of course, fashion has changed along the way. But uh, I guess maybe if we wait long enough, you know, similar to hipsters, um, that eventually your your transit fabric will become popular again. And in fact, Transport for London actually sells patterns of their seats, their fabric, for the public to purchase and, and basically upholster your furniture or, or wear clothes <laughs> on. So you can you can look like a pile of vomit on a seat. That seems to be the example. Brian, because the, the photo they give, colourful, seems to be des designed to discourage people from sitting down at all, given that it looks like vomit. <laughs> you wouldn't actually know if there was actual vomit on the seat or not. That's right. Uh, I think it's um, designed and intended very much like that, so that uh, you, you're never sure. People, you say, Brian, take the pattern, and this lady wears them on the bus. If you saw someone doing that, you or you went to someone's house with that pattern on there, you would think they worked for the company and had pinched the fabric. <laughs> That's, mm. Her experience was that people didn't really notice it at first, and some, mm. some people well, who did notice it behaved in different ways, but a lot of the times people didn't make that connection that she was wearing the the, the uh, transit seat pattern. Well, they didn't recognise them when she was sitting down. Yes. Oh, oh sorry, I didn't it, see you sitting there. It, you, it makes you more invisible <laughs> until someone sits on you. It, I mean, it's like all the employees from British Leyland. They had bathrooms painted in Morris Marina yellow. Because <laughs> the paint seemed <laughs> easy to get. Yeah. But they do talk about it as a work of art. She actually said that it was horrible stuff to wear. Yes, stiff and uncomfortable. Made of sweat and, you know, felt mm. like knight's armour. And, and it's really hard work to do it. It's like wearing a rug. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I wonder then whether it becomes work of art. We start talking about seats in all that artistic jargon. So, you know, flowing, delicate design with bold, thick strokes, contrasting and muted designs as well, a curvaceous, non-geometrical, angular, elongated thing that 
they're just a whole pile of words that we may use to describe this. The other thing is that perhaps people didn't recognise it because she hadn't put enough stains on it. <laughs> Look, I, I think, too, that um, we don't celebrate the fashion of them enough. And, and what about if instead of, or in addition to having, um, you know, sort of ready-to-wear fashion shows, we could actually have fashion shows for transit seats, for bus seats and things like that. So, so you know, a lot of people compete to be in the front seat of those catwalk shows. You could compete to be on the back seat of the bus. <laughs> and try and pay, not pay. Yeah. Errol, you described it as ugly and that. I've seen worse. Any Academy Awards, I would think. <laughs> it was a simple dress and I, I thought it had simple style to it. Yeah. I, I, I yeah. actually liked the frock, which was a, a very German-looking thing, wasn't it? I, I quite liked the pattern, but, yeah, it certainly looks stiff and um, it kind of looks like a sort of thing... A, an East German um, Stasi agent might wear in when they're shadowing somebody. Now, there's a link here to anthropology, as we discussed. The anthropologist Heidi Slamane said, I like the ritual, the liturgy of a well-crafted emotional fashion show. What you were talking about, Brian. I will never be jaded with this side of fashion. The catwalk is pure anthropology, something like an esoteric encrypted parade. It can totally be replaced but it will be missed. So we should link anthropology to fashion to the seats on buses. Mm. I I just love that basically one of the reasons they're so ugly is that it's designed by committee. So basically a train seat is a couch designed by committee. (laughs) (laughs) Errol, you have a story. Yes, well, David, apparently road signs warning of birds crossing is just isn't cutting it up in Iceland. So they're taking a different tact and trying to discourage the birds from wandering onto the road at all. But not with fences or anything, but by seemingly making the road so ugly that nothing will want to step foot on it, even the Arctic terns they want to protect. The uh, bright road surface colours like red, yellow or white are supposed to protect the birds, which they like the warmth of the normally black road surface. This whole thing of roads absorbing heat is actually a big issue in the function of a city. And it's been said, and planners have looked at this and found that it absorbs so much heat, we then have to have more energy to generate heat in winter, for example, so that we then use more energy. And if roads were a different colour we might save energy. It mm. contributes to the urban heat island effect, mm. David. Yes. Well, one of the issues is, though, based on the photos, that pretty quickly that bright red road gets darker and dirtier and blacker, mm-hmm. either the paint wearing or the, or the rubber being put down over the top. And um, So we need red tires and red oil in cars. Right, no, why don't they just go with scarecrows or something like that or paint cats along the way? They want to yeah. scare the scare them, the the Arctic terns. I got a little confused here for a while because the Great Viewpoint Boatworks builds an Arctic tern. It's a eighteen foot two long boat. Uh, in fact, no, they've stretched it to nineteen foot uh, four inches. Mm. It's quick and manoeuvrable, and it's a really of a sort of an old style. So I wondered why we they were having boats on the road there anyway. But as it turns out, of course, it's that. The thing about the Arctic tern, the bird. Yeah, the poor buggers, let them have a break. Do you know what these things do? They fly from the Arctic to the Antarctic every year. So you think Mm. they deserve a warm spot to rest? They even work out how to sleep while they're flying. 
these, you know, how inhumane it would be not to give them a chance just to put their legs up. Their legs are very short, of course, because that helps the aerodynamics. Mm. So they've got to support their whole weight on little stumpy legs. So yeah, they, they, they rest. They, they found one of them flo- flew 96,000 kilometres. Oh, look, I, about, I think about, about, about 60,000 miles. That, oh, that's, a, that's a lot of frequent flyer points. <laughs> What's needed here is signs, isn't it, for the drivers to watch out for them. Yeah. I think. Show them a bit of respect. Indeed. They weigh about what is a quarter pounder burger, someone has worked out. And <laughs> and these little fellas, the fellas, as I meant that generically, they fly enormous distance. You're right, 90,000 kilometres a year. Quarter pounder size. Are they good eating? <laughs> well, if you kill them on the road, I suppose you could road use roadkill. Yeah. Hmm. Now, let me just uh, finish with a story. The Northern Territory government has, in fact, extended the unlimited speed on their road, so there's no speed limits on an extended section of some of their road, unrestricted speed zones. But uh, not surprisingly, the surgeons and doctors have come out saying this is crazy. This is a bad spot for it. The appalling road in its condition for this sort of thing and it can only lead to more deaths. Yeah, David, they, uh, the Northern Territory has a road uh, death, car crash death, three times higher than other states in terms of the fatalities per 100,000 people. A lot of presumed alcohol involvement in a lot of crashes there as well. Uh, they say, of course, that the actually, once they put the speed limits up, the 85th percentile, that's the speed at which 85% of cars are below, is still, I mean, it's only up a little, it's around 135 or so kilometres an hour. I looked at some statistics, and one of the biggest problems is not that a- average type of figure, it's the maximum. And before, on a section of road, the maximum was still very high, 200 and something, 20. But after, it was 295. Jesus. Now, the issue of this is that the roads there are incredibly unforgiving. People say, oh, look at the, the autobahns in Germany. They have a good death rate, you know, low death rate. Mm. Well, it's reasonably low, but it's also an incredibly high-quality road. Yeah, I was going to say, they've, they've, they've got autobahn speeds up there, but they don't have autobahn roads to have those speeds on. You know why they do it, of course? Tourism. Yes. Oh, really? It draws yes. people? Well, a number of things. It draws uh, car companies who might want to test their cars in certain conditions. You know how people from the car industry eat and drink, so, you know, it's, uh, they're all very good <laughs> recompense from the tourists that go there. But the other thing is for very rich people who want to fang their cars. This is something mm. for the uh, autonomous vehicle anthropologists to deal with, I suspect. Yes, <laughs> yes, I think so. Yes, uh, apparently this idea that uh, the death rates will go up uh, was brought to you, brought to us by Dr. Obvious, assisted by Nurse Told You So, <laughs> from the Department of What Could Possibly Go Wrong. <laughs> They've done some surveys. Now, boy, you've got to watch surveys. For a start, the death rate has been going down, so we're getting safer cars. So if it continues to go down, is that because the speed limits don't mean anything or the fact that it's a trend or or whatever? Uh, It's muddy, isn't it? The numbers are incredibly low. It's like, who was it, Wheels Magazine did a run from Melbourne to Sydney and averaged 135 uh, kilometres an hour, uh, averaged, including stops, 
and therefore put the headline, and we did not die. Now, that's true. They proved that if you do higher speeds, you don't automatically die. Automatically. (laughs) But they did a 1,000 kilometres, say, perhaps less. We kill one person every 189 million kilometres. So they'd have to do that run from Melbourne to Sydney and back, you know, 180,000 times before they had a reasonable sample. Right. It would keep them uh, occupied. Lies, lies, damn lies and statistics, David. My my point is that, you know, one event doesn't prove anything, and and these are a case. Gentlemen, a serious note to end on, uh, having started, I think, in a a, a wonderful, light-hearted way, but nonetheless, uh, we cover all issues. Thank you for your time. No worries, David. Bye, David. Errol Smith and Brian Smith talking some unusual stories to do with motoring and transport.